You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You are listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is David Bloom, a journalist, strategist, and educator. David writes weekly columns for TubeFilter and TV Rev, teaches at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, and hosts his very own podcast, Bloom and Tech. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here in your uh, palatial estate high above Hill Street in downtown Los Angeles. That's right. We're coming to you live from Paladin HQ here in uh, downtown LA. Glad to be here. I made it uh, down the uh, vaunted uh, rail lines that we actually have in Los Angeles. No one believes it. They're from New York. You don't have a subway. You don't have rail lines. Uh, we, we've got a few. So yeah. you got me here, so that's all that matters. So Very good. Well, I wanted to jump in and start things off by talking about you know the fact that you've covered the intersection of entertainment and technology now for more than 20 years. Years. So what originally attracted you to the journalism field? Well, I was uh, young and impressionable a very long time ago. I was named editor of my, my high school newspaper. Went in to put out the first issue and said, this is what I want to do. It has been a, uh, an abiding addiction off and on in my career ever since that I just can't shake the Jones, I'm afraid. Like the opportunity to talk about, think about, learn about stuff on a daily basis and communicate that to people. And, you know, the most interesting to me, one of the most interesting areas, I covered politics for many years. I was an investigative reporter. I wrote about transportation and all kinds of entertainment stuff. But then to me, the really interesting thing is this transformation that technology is wreaking upon entertainment and has been since uh, the mid-90s when the internet first blew up. We're seeing it everything from back in the day with DVD, but you know, the internet, now we're at a place where we're internet streaming and how everybody's delivering content that way and all the new technologies like 5G mobile that are going to transform the way we get high-quality low latency video and video game experiences and VR experiences on our handset, on our tablet, uh, wherever we may be. So, you know, there's a lot of other things changing the business, but it's, you know, how, how Hollywood is having difficulties adapting is fascinating, how new, new players like Netflix and Amazon are coming in. All of that is, uh, it's like catnip. In 2003, you made a brief departure from journalism and served as MGM's VP of Corporate Communication. So what was it like being on the other side? It was very interesting. It was very humbling to understand how little journalists know about the inner workings of big corporations. I think it was really useful to see what a, at then a good-sized studio we were not as big as some, and that led us to go ahead and decide to put the, the the studio up for sale, and it's gone through quite a path since then, but it's got its hands in a lot of things now, it's privately held. But um, going through the sale to uh, a consortium of private equity firms that also included Comcast and Sony, going and Warner Brothers was bidding on us as well, that was a pretty intense experience, and it was certainly a wonderful learning opportunity. And after leaving MGM, you pursued a variety of projects, primarily in the digital space. So what inspired your interest at that point in digital? Well, I mean, digital, again, is where we're seeing the interesting stuff happening. You can do a job doing the same old thing that's been going on for, in the film business's case, 100 years, and that's certainly an honorable way to make a living, as long as you still can, though it's complicated to do that these days. Or you can figure out what's happening that's interesting and transformative that you'd like to be a part of. You can learn and grow. I'm a big believer that if you stop growing, you stop, you're dying. So it's not quite being a shark, but it is about moving forward. So given your experience on the studio side and, of course, covering this space for so long, what is your take on the different studios' level of progress, how progressive they are around digital? Some seem to have been early adopters and experimenting in the space. Others are slow to figure out what trends they want to back. What's your take on the current landscape? Yeah, I mean, they have the classic uh, dilemma that uh, was it uh, uh, Christensen wrote about in terms of the innovator's dilemma in terms of, you know, as the incumbent, how much do you blow up your existing, you know, highly valuable business models to chase the thing that's not quite here yet? 
And so you end up ceding to somebody else the territory of innovation, of getting new audiences who are uh, glomming on to new platforms and new distribution methods. I would say that it feels like Disney, as big as it is, has been a little slow. I see now that they're, they're pulling back the curtain more and more on their streaming service. It's not going to arrive till late next year, which is like, gosh. <laughs> and they'll still have content on Netflix through that period. And they'll still have some content on Netflix. They'll, I mean, they're cutting, pulling stuff back, but there's things that they won't get back until 2021 that are sprinkled around in other places. They did make the acquisition of Fox after some fight from Comcast, and that was a big deal of seven. 75 billion or 81 billion, I guess, 81 billion dollar deal, which is going to cost them a fair chunk of change to pay off. They're big enough, they should be able to do it. But you know, their total valuation is 165 billion. So you spend about half that to buy Fox to be able to get more content to drop into your service and to get different kinds of content than just the the feel-good family blockbusters that they're known for. I think that that was smart and trying to essentially counter-program against themselves. We'll see what they do with Hulu, because they now have a controlling interest in Hulu. Uh, some of the conversation is that'll be the, the big boy grown-up site, and the streaming service that they're rolling out will be for more of Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, ABC, ABC Family, etc., etc. But, you know, big as they are, they they probably should have been sooner to the game in some ways. But the flip side is every time they seem to jump into digital, it hasn't gone that well. I mean, we'd go back 20 years and can find, you know, they got into the portal business back when that was a thing in the web portal business with go.com and that it went. And uh, Disney Interactive has had lots and lots of challenges. And uh, Club Penguin is uh, now no longer a club. Uh, it's, a, it's a long list. That being said, Viacom finally seems to be waking up after a long slumber under its previous CEO, the current guy, I think, is doing some really interesting acquisitions. You see Time Warner, now part of AT&T. We'll see how that all plays out. I think that's going to get in the way of some of the things they were trying to do, so it's hard to judge them. Uh, they're now Warner Media, but they have people like the folks at TBS and, and TNT that are very data smart as a TV network, as a pair of TV networks, using that to transform their business as a, as a TV network, I think is where television, which is where the real money has been in entertainment the last 20 years, they're ahead of the game. But now we'll see what happens under AT&T, which is telling HBO, for instance, you're gonna to have to create a lot more content because you're competing with YouTube. And no one puts YouTube influencers in the same bucket as- Premium scripted. Sharp objects. Yeah or Game of Thrones. But that feels like what John Stanky just did in the conversation he had with his people back in, back in June when he just took over. So we'll see what HBO becomes. Um, so that's an interesting one to look forward to seeing it unfold. Paramount, again, part of Viacom, we'll see where they go. We'll, we'll look at you know, what happens with, uh, and Fox has been bought up, so what's left of Fox, again, up in the air. <laughs> I mean, so much is up in the air. So Disney's absorbing Fox. Time Warner, I mean, Warner Media is now being absorbed by AT&T. Those are going to be serious distractions for them. The, what's left of Fox, we'll try to figure out how they work without a movie studio, with uh, without a bunch of other stuff. It's a really complicated and interesting time. And Sony is for sale. They're trying to fix Crackle. They're trying to look for strategic partners for Crackle, their little live video streaming uh, site. But they're they're for sale. And we'll see. Who do you think's the most likely buyer for an asset like Sony? Well, what are you buying them for? So they got a music label that's pretty big. They have the most valuable thing that they do, which is their video game operation, PlayStation, which has also got a skinny bundle, the PlayStation View Network. You've got things like Crackle, which are sort of random assets that might be something useful. Uh, you've got a movie studio. You've got a big TV production operation that, uh, you know, its top guys were stolen by Apple. But the guys that are there now are pretty good. They took, they got, they hired away the guy who was the head of Hulu, and he's pretty good. So if you look at all that, so you've got a bunch of assets there. Oh yeah, and they also make consumer electronics. I've heard, but they're priced out of the market. They're just getting their butts handed to them by the Koreans and the Chinese manufacturers. Um, they've got no presence in mobile to speak of. So you know, you got a check for forty billion. You got Sony. And you got a really good game network at a time, or a game platform at a time when that's also up in the air a little bit. 
You know, Microsoft just came out with a, an all-subscription deal for like up to 35 bucks a month. You get access to all these games, access to all the online play, and you buy on consignment, essentially, an Xbox One or the Xbox S. One X or the Xbox S, One S. And, and that's a pretty good deal, but that looks more like a mobile business, right? So that's where they're going with cloud-based streaming games and subscription services. So even the hardware becomes less important. So if you buy Sony for its gaming stuff, what do you get? So that's another issue. Yeah. And meanwhile, CBS is locked up in court battles. CBS is mired in Me Too, and we'll see how that plays out. I mean, they've also got you know Sherry Redstone, who was controlling the company and what was essentially a push on the part of uh, uh, Les Moonves, and then he gets the Me Too bite. That's got them completely mired. They've got all, all access and they've got Showtime. I think people are interested for all accesses Star Trek, but I see some people who sign up for that, do the free trial and then cancel. They binge watch the Star Trek episodes and they're out. So we'll see how that plays out. They need more reasons to spend money on all access for that to be useful. Showtime has got a bunch of original content. It's already a premium channel. People already are comfortable with that. I think Showtime makes more sense to a lot of people than paying for streaming access to one show, really, and a bunch of other shows that you can watch free over the air. So I don't know if the value proposition is there for CBS, and as you say, they are locked in a bunch of distractions, just as Fox is, just as Disney is, just as WarnerMedia is. They're all going through transformations that are really complicated and difficult, and so those aren't even about technology. Those are about everything else that's going on, in, sometimes in response to technology, because part of the reason why there was less Moonves and the push by the CBS board was they didn't want to get sold off to who... They, they didn't want to have to merge with Viacom for an eventual sale that would make Sherry Redstone happy. She was the controlling shareholder for both companies, and they didn't want to have to do that because they thought they had a better deal they could have made. I think it was with Verizon kicking the tires before Verizon changed CEOs. Verizon also up in the air. They have a new CEO who's more about building out the 5G network than doing the acquisitions that characterized his predecessor. So it's an interesting time, but one of a great deal of uncertainty and flux. And you've touched on a lot of the different strategies and approaches to OTT and SVOD. Do you think that a programming brand like Showtime carries enough weight to have its own SVOD service? Or, or you mentioned Crackle as part of Sony. Can they afford to stand on their own or are they going to be bundled in with Hulu, Netflix, more of these aggregator plays for uh, audience attention? Well, Crackle's uh, different than Showtime in many ways. It's free, it's ad-supported, it's streaming. Showtime comes in as a premium cable heritage. It has a bunch of high quality, it's at best a half step behind HBO. It doesn't get quite as many awards, but it's very, very good these days. It has a lot of bingeable content. And again, people are used to saying, I'm gonna spend five bucks or eight bucks or 10 bucks for Showtime on my cable thing. I don't think from a mental standpoint, it's a big switch to go, I'll spend to get it directly. You know, all I've done is cut out the middleman, the cable provider, I'm just gonna get it directly over my, my internet source, which may indeed be my cable provider or former cable provider. So that's not a big deal, but Crackle, Pluto TV, Tubi, TV, those are, are free, over-the-air channels, ad-supported, trying to build businesses. They argue, and I think they've got a reasonable argument, that people only have so much money to spend on subscriptions. There's a lot of subscription content out there right now. It's difficult to see how that all gets paid for, and some stuff is going to try to stick, and it's not. The free over-the-air, or free over-the-internet stuff has a chance with ads if they can get enough viewers to build a sustainable business, just like we've had sustainable, free, ad-supported content for a long time. And particularly in emerging markets where the economics are harder to justify a monthly subscription, right? What are you going to do in India or Turkey, right? These free-over-the-air platforms can make it work with an ad-supported model. Well, I don't think it's just there. I just saw a headline today. I didn't get a chance to read it uh, before I came over that Netflix continues to have challenges uh, penetrating uh, lower-income households. Well, that's because people only have so much money to spend, and Netflix is great, but maybe they just get a cheap bundle, or they just get over the air and make do. That's what they do. And so something, if you do have internet, a free channel that has, I mean, Tubi makes a big deal out of, because they've got the MGM 
library of 4,000 plus films. They've got the Lionsgate library. They've got Paramount's library, they have access to it. They say they've got 7,400 titles now, more than Netflix. That's a lot. And you can watch it free. And uh, you'll have to watch ads, but you can watch it free. Okay, so that starts to hit a niche down there that's different than the one Netflix hits. And so I think there's something there. We just don't know who the winners are going to be. And it's not just entertainment or content companies launching these SVOD services. It's also you know tech giants, Amazon, Netflix getting into streaming. And of course, Walmart right announced that they're going to launch a new streaming subscription service. Yeah, Walmart feels like a me too. I mean, they have the Voodoo, essentially the iTunes store equivalent where you can buy this movie, you rent it or buy it and download it. And it's not a big stretch to then do streaming. Okay, a service that does SVOD streaming, but how are they going to differentiate? So probably it's going to be family-friendly, um, branded content. I know I was at, when that news came out, I was actually moderating a panel that day at a conference for the Entertainment Merchants Association on OTT. And the guys who head Dove TV, which is one of MGM's operations, he's like, I can't wait to pitch to these guys because we've got Christian-oriented, you know, because Mark Burnett's connected with MGM and does all of the reality stuff with them and does a lot of, like, the Bible and all that. He's done a bunch of, of uh, Christian-related stuff. They think they got a huge opportunity for somebody like Walmart to go hit flyover land with content that's more likely to appeal to them, that's family-friendly and, and, you know, simpler, less edgy, so on and so forth. And they're probably right. Again, there are markets there. They can probably hit it, but they don't have enough original content, so how much are they going to spend to matter? I mean, you can license a bunch of stuff, but if you license that stuff, I mean, that's what Netflix started with, but they realized at some point they had to have their own because you can't count on everybody else to keep licensing to you, as Disney is showing right now. So Exactly. And what are the, where do the content budgets stand now? I think Netflix is spending close to $10 billion this year, Amazon $5 billion. Uh, the numbers, the official numbers are $8 billion for uh, Netflix, but there are those who say if you look at their long-term commitments to ongoing programming um, deals, they're really spending about $12 billion. They're going to offer up, they said, 700 different shows, movies, and, and series this year original programming, that's a pretty astonishing number. I don't think you could actually watch all of that content in a year, but that's not the point. The point is to have a wide array of stuff for all of their 130 million users across the planet, because they're now in 192 countries, I believe. And just today, Facebook Watch went more went international, so they're trying to catch up. But they, they've, eight to 12 billion, somewhere in that ballpark, it's a big ballpark, it's more than anybody else is spending on non-sports related content. Amazon has set four and a half billion. Others are saying it's closer to five now. They certainly are getting more aggressive. They're making a bunch of other pushes onto hardware with a DVR service that would be more competitive with somebody like YouTube TV, the skinny bundle that Google offers. They have uh, a new app, Fire TV app, that looks a lot like Roku TV and Tubi TV and, and, Plant and Pluto. So they're spending in lots of interesting ways. Plus they have Twitch which is their live streaming, gamer-focused, but now, I mean, I, I was at uh, VidCon and talked to uh, one of the founders of Twitch and one of their key uh, global programming people after they had spoken on stage, and they're focused on trying to get more content beyond the game business. The game business is great. That's their roots, but like they're doing a, another marathon programming thing right now. They've done The Simpsons and they've done Julia Child. Bob Ross, Bob Mr. Rogers. Ross, Mr. Rogers. They've got a new one coming out. I mean, it's really funny to see some of these, but they're like, they cut across and beyond the game space to pull people in who might find other things. And they have an increasing, an increasingly large group of people who are streaming about stuff that isn't about games. Yeah. And it seems like a good strategy. I think people forget YouTube started out as the place for pirated content and cat videos. And then grew up to become mostly music and gaming, and still the footprint really looks a lot like that, but they've got, of course, lifestyle, fashion, entertainment, and everything else. Yeah, the else. Beauty, beauty business is gigantic, and just this last weekend they had this goofy boxing match. I wrote about this over the weekend. Yeah, what's your take on Logan Paul versus KSI? Uh, I, I've actually interviewed KSI, and he's actually a fairly thoughtful guy. He was in a, a movie last year, a little low-budget movie last year with uh, another guy, Casper. Casper Ray, I think. I'm blanking on his last name. This year, they did this thing. They spent six months hyping this thing. 
and it was big not just for them because they had five million people spending up to ten bucks for the pay-per-view if you look at it they had all kinds of video leading up to it so they're making money off the promotions I mean who makes money off the promotions that you're you're spending but they're making because they're gonna get a share of the ads wrapped around the promotional like you know the weigh-in video and the the disc video that Logan Paul created to make fun of KSI before the match and all that but they're not the only ones that did it so so I look at some stats from Tubular Labs, who tracks all this stuff. 23 videos were uploaded the day of the match and the day after the match that had at least a million views, had nothing to do with the official stream. It was things like PewDiePie, who put up something. It was mostly before the match, and then he topped it off at the end, you know, without showing the stuff because he couldn't, but saying, you know, a lot of people on the, on the web are asking for a refund. Because, you know, they had a draw, and it was kind of a setup and all that. And, you know, God bless them. And but Which he, makes everyone wonder, was this just a publicity stunt, right? Exactly. They minted $70 million plus yeah. from this. They're making millions of dollars. But, I mean, PewDie got 11.5 million views in two days on that. And he'd done another video back in July kind of ranting about the stupid thing. He has nothing to do directly with the fight. He's just PewDiePie with 65 million subscribers. And he had 12 million views of that. And he's getting a chunk of that. So he's laughing all the way to the bank, and a bunch of other people are too. Uh, he's going down the list of these guys who were putting stuff up, or they're like, there were people talking about the disc video. They were commenting on the disc video and getting millions of views. So it had this, this effect within the broader cloud of influencers in YouTube, and a whole lot of people made money off of it. And I think that's what's sort of fascinating about. You know, that the hype's going on, but the hype is bigger than just the thing they're hyping. It's the hype about the hype. Yeah. <laughs> it's the meta hype that has as much reach as anything. So that's, it's fascinating. That's right. Influencers are finding more ways than ever to make money. And they have to, right? And it's it, it, we've seen some great examples of that. We've also seen uh, in the press recently brands getting in trouble for contracting uh, young people with some sort of limited social media following to promote their brand that don't even give them a contract, they just PayPal them directly. And so their continued concerns, not just about, you know, are you doing FTC compliance, but also kind of the ethical guidelines of influencer marketing to begin with. Right. I mean, it's like you've got COPA laws, which are, you know, you can't market to kids under 13. You've got no oversight over what these guys are saying. I mean, typically they have like a following of a few hundred or a few thousand people and they're saying oh this game's great or whatever and on the one hand I know that there's some guy some media agency going we were freaking brilliant and now you've been caught and we've already got the FTC watching much more closely I think there's probably some some reasons for concern we'll see how that plays out but more generally it's like I think they're being clever I'm all for clever but you know maybe not even telling the parents <laughs> Junior's got a lot of money to spend on, uh, you know, crappy junk food all of a sudden. How'd that happen, you know? He's, he can afford to go to his own movie. He's not asking us for, I mean, I know that uh, $5 allowance isn't going that far. Uh, it's not like he's some super influencer with, you know, millions of followers either. So, so there's a really interesting issue there, I think, about, you know, who's regulating this, you know, is there abuse going on? Who's paying the taxes on this stuff? What are the compliance issues in terms of meeting the FTC, which doesn't get down to a thousand follower people very often? There's a whole bunch of stuff there that I think they're going to stumble into over the, and it's going to need a while to unpack. That just came out, I guess, two weeks ago or so. And it's a real concern. And, and you know, there's, there's other things swirling in the influencer marketing space as well. One of the, the hot topics is should celebrity endorsements be held to the same standard, right? The FTC doesn't necessarily police celebrities who are sponsored by a clothing brand or an athletic brand. And all of a sudden they're using their social influence to magnify the reach, but not you know, using hashtag ad or, or uh, indicating that's a paid promotion. Yeah, I, uh, I was at a panel put together by Tubefilter, for whom I write a weekly column, and they had the Western Region Commissioner for the FTC there, and, and he was talking about the challenges, and they're trying to deal with that. But among the folks on the panel were a couple of influencers. They say, look, Kim Kardashian, two words, that's all we need to say. Every freaking thing she puts up there is practically a promotion, right? And she makes millions of dollars. Why is that treated? And then they said, even if you don't want to talk about Kim Kardashian, let's just look at typical product placement in TV shows. So I do a reality TV show and I get 
you know, some clothing brands clothes donated in exchange for promotional consideration. They're in there, and then I have to put something at the end of the show, right? At the end of the show, 30 minutes after you've watched it all, and they're wearing the clothes, and they're going into the store, they're doing whatever. That's all they need to do. Yet, if you are an influencer, you have to not only put it up front and disclose, but you have to put it in, in these tags in there. And verbally call it out. And verbally call it out. And more importantly, you get hammered by the algorithm and you get hammered by your followers who say, you know, I don't want to watch an ad. So they don't watch it. So your views go down. And then on top of that, the YouTube or Facebook algorithm deprecates it and shows it to fewer people to begin with. So And then the brand's not happy because they didn't get the views they were expecting. (laughs) Exactly. So they're like... How is this right? So these guys put it at the end, and, and no one even notices because the stream, the, the credits go by, they're this big, and they're zipping by, or... Or they DVR'd it, and they've skipped they that DVR'd part skipped completely. skipped all that completely, right? Or it's Kim Kardashian, and no one seems to care that she's raking in millions of dollars doing this, or Kendall Jenner, or whoever that, that clan is. It's, you know, got all these endorsements and deals that they don't have to do any disclosure about whatsoever. And I understand why they're frustrated. And the FTC is like, oh, we're trying to figure it out. Give us a break. But, you know, yeah, give us a break, too. Let's figure out how we have equitable treatment. I don't know if we're going to get there anytime soon. Let's switch things up and talk a little bit about ByteDance's decision to shut down Musical.ly in favor of their Asian uh, sister company, TikTok. Well, I think what they did was say, we've got two things that are kind of the same. And the one thing is a lot bigger than the other thing. So TikTok is gigantic in China. Half a billion, half a billion users. It's Huge. And what Musically did got very big very fast. And they spent a billion dollars to buy it and its little spinoff, Lively, shut down Lively uh, months ago because it too was like something else that they already had. In some ways, it feels like they're just killing off a competitor. Now they say, oh, we are just rebranding. Uh, musically, and we're adding new stuff. And they said, oh, we're also going to give you a bigger audience. Well, Maybe you're giving a bigger audience, but their audience is almost overwhelmingly in China, behind a censorship wall that's pretty tough. So one of the questions I was asking was, all right, all of a sudden, if I am somebody musically and I want to do a song from the Christopher Robin movie, which, by the way, wasn't allowed into China because, weirdly, Winnie the Pooh has become a symbol of the resistance to the Chinese government. And they use a lot of icons and, and metaphor and illusion and images and emoji to, to skirt the yeah, skirt the censorship. They're trying to skirt censorship. So Winnie the Pooh, uh, resistance fighter, is verboten now in China and it's increasingly autocratic, autocratic government. Well, so you're you know a kid in I don't know Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and you want to just do a cover of the song you saw on Christopher Robin, is that going to get you in trouble because you mentioned Winnie the Pooh? Or an unboxing video of a Winnie the Pooh doll? Or, I mean, those kinds of things. And you kind of wonder what's going to be okay. And this is one of the issues that happens as China's internet industry continues to explode in size. And yet it is almost overwhelmingly contained within China. And they have not been able to cross lines well. They have to, they, you know, they create things that are big over here. Tencent, one of the two or three biggest companies in China, internet companies in China, has a bunch of gaming operations. But what they do in China is often generally very different. And gaming's different than other kinds of content. It's a little bit less fraught um, in terms of the censorship and stuff. But it's interesting to watch how those companies dealing with the Chinese government regulation and then trying to come to other markets, how they how they will play out. The same is true in motion pictures, right? Some of the, the biggest and highest grossing films of the year are Chinese, and most people here in the States have never heard of them. Right. The, uh, this first quarter, I think, um, actually China was the biggest film market in the world because a couple of their films, I thought there was a third one, but I couldn't track it down, had all grossed more than $400 million, but no more than about one or two million each of those grosses came from outside of China. I mean, it was almost all inside China. Wow. And uh, there were huge films, but no one could tell you, unless you were over in the San Gabriel Valley grabbing uh, wonderful Chinese food and, and an Alhambra or Rosemead, there's no one you would know in Los Angeles that could pick out what those films are. Um, you can see them over there and have a great meal, so I strongly recommend it if you want to go um, get outside your, your backyard. But outside of Chinese expat communities, 
nothing. And do you think that'll change? Is it just the diaspora that's consuming that Chinese content? Or do you think China can increase its media export value to neighboring countries like Korea, Japan, other parts of Asia? Well, there was just uh, this last week uh, a meltdown by, uh, I think it was, I want to say it's Open Road, but I may be wrong, but Tang Media, which is a Chinese company, wanted to, to buy into the U.S. entertainment business and use that to create content that could do well in the U.S. and do well here. Well, it didn't work out, and now they're filing their U.S. operation is in Chapter 11. We've seen other companies come in with very aggressive stuff on the Chinese side, buying in. Wanda Dalian has bought AMC Theaters, and they had some, some challenges, I think, with some other stuff. It's a complicated story, but... Legendary is now owned by a Chinese parent company as well. Right, and we'll see how that goes. There have been a lot of things happening, but I haven't seen a lot of home runs. And I guess, you know, you've got a huge market over there, but you also have really tight controls over what is in, what's even allowed in, in, in to be shown in the country by the Chinese government, and what kinds of topics it can talk about. I think it makes it very tough, but the Chinese government would love to be able to exercise the same kind of what they call soft power that U.S. has been able to do with Hollywood for all these years. You know, Hollywood writes these stories that make Americans look like, you know, heroes and saviors and all that. It makes them look good, and then that goes and plays in a hundred other countries, and it, it tells a story of the United States that the U.S. government doesn't have to tell. Well, they would love to do that in China. They just haven't figured out how to do that in a way that people are interested in. And, you know, if you know the 5,000-year history of a very, very inside-looking government of China. For 5,000 years, you know, it was, the, it was the kingdom of heaven and everything else was just wanting to be like them, even if everybody else was like, nah, not so much. That's their history, that's their mindset, and, and, and they have to figure out how to do something for a broader world. Let's talk about the success of the box office the past few weekends of Crazy Rich Asians, right? That's a film that has surpassed a lot of expectations as something that features a, uh, a minority cast, right? Which is unusual in Hollywood. Well, it's the first time we've seen an all, or effectively all, Asian cast in 25 years. That's right. Which is ridiculous. It says a lot about Hollywood's risk aversion and uh, blinkered approach to entertainment for mass audiences. You know, they know what they know, and they don't want to get outside of it. So, weirdly, I, I saw the film, I thought it was terrific, uh, without overstating it. It's a, it's, a, it's a great little romantic comedy don't put too much on it. It's not the second coming of the Godfather. It's not, you know, Singapore Godfather. It's not It's not probably even Four Weddings and a Funeral, but it's a nice little romantic comedy. It's got some nice spins on it. It deals with some topics. Singapore looks fantastic. Food looks awesome. It's a great film, and I think it's going to make some careers for a couple of guys. The lead, the male actor, is definitely going to have opportunities he didn't have before when he was the host of a Malaysian travel show. He's a hunk and he's going to do great. But they put way too much on that show before it came out. And now that it's done well, it's going to be opening the store for not just a sequel, of course, but a bunch of other stuff. And it's like Hollywood is just dumb sometimes about, oh, now that that worked, everything's going to work and we're going to do a bunch of stuff. You know, the copycat mentality. Great great that it did well. It should do well. It's a nice little film and they should be proud of what they've created. But I like to tell you how lame Hollywood can be, when I went, went to go watch the, the, the film in, in a big, in an AMC theater, as a matter of fact, they ran a bunch of trailers before, 20-odd minutes of trailers, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But they didn't even have films that featured largely Asian or significant Asian casts in them. You know, you try to figure out when, when you're stacking up the films you're going to put in trailers before a movie, you try to figure out what else is this audience going to be interested in. And sometimes those trailers are based on what the distributor wants because they say, okay, I get to put three of my films in the trailer mix. And then there's some other ones that the distributor, I mean, the the, the theater wants to put in there to help push stuff. They had nothing. They had a bunch of films that featured largely African-American cast. It was almost like 
they decided, well, we don't have any with this minority in them, so we'll show the films with another minority. <laughs> and it was like, really? This is all you got? And they had one film with John Cho, a little, it's a little horror film called Searching, and it's got some interesting social media components in it, and I'm trying to get in to see it and all that. But, but that was all they had with an Asian lead. So they had, like, well, let's do black people. Those are like Asian people, but darker. It's like, no. <laughs> but whatever. I mean, that's all you got to throw up there. It's like, it was really sort of insulting. And I'm saying that as an old white guy. It yeah. Was insulting. So, so how do we change that narrative for Hollywood? How do we get more diversity in programming and lead roles? Chance to earn the same you know, paychecks and, and titles as, as white actors? Well, I think... Part of what will open those doors is continued conversation. I mean, I don't know that identity politics by itself will be able to do that. But I do think the fact that we have new players like Hulu, like Netflix, like Tubi TV, you know, who are coming in and, and, and wanting to do original content and wanting to be able to reach different audiences and, more importantly, they know their audiences. So all of a sudden, like Netflix can sit there and go, I'm, I'm going to do a deal with Kenya Barris, you know, the wonderful Emmy-nominated creator of Blackish and Girls Trip. I'm going to do a $100 million deal with Kenya Barris and a $300 million deal with Brian Murphy and a, probably a $300 million deal with uh, Shonda Rhimes, who are, you know, Murphy's gay, Barris and Shonda are black, and, and obviously Shonda's female, different <laughs> than traditional Hollywood. Because we know that they'll create stuff that we can market to specific slices of our 130 million subscribers. And we know we can get back every bit of that $300 million deal because we know what they're going to make. We know the audiences that they like. And we know how to reach those people directly and to give them what they want. So unlike traditional Hollywood, they actually know what their audience is. They know how to reach it efficiently. And they know how to keep giving it to them. So they can, they can make deals and they can make projects with so much more knowledge. And that's where Hollywood has to go, is to understand that there's, you know, a growing Asian population in this in this country. There's a significant African-American population. There's a gigantic Latino population, particularly in the biggest states in the nation. You know, California, Texas, Texas Florida. Yeah. I'm talking about the big four. Sure. New York, California, Texas, and Florida, the four biggest states in the country, also are huge Latino populations. And that group isn't being dealt with, though we do see... Mexican-born directors winning Oscars, you know, Shape of Water, uh, Alfonso Cuaron with the films that he's done, like Gravity. I mean, people are making, at least there you've got Latinos making films that are big Hollywood productions that are winning awards and selling hundreds of millions of tickets. But it's like everybody else got to catch up. And, and what I think will make a difference is we now have new players with new approaches who actually know who their audiences can be and know how to reach them. The rise of the celebrity showrunner phenomenon is a fascinating one that's emerged in, I don't know, the last decade or two. What do you think led to that? And would we have known Shonda Rhimes or, or uh, Ryan Murphy's name 20 years ago? Uh, well, we knew who Steven Bochco was back in the day. We knew who Dick Wolf was, yet another Law and Order. We knew a few people. But I think the real change was that TV got valuable. So in the rise of cable TV in the 1990s, all of a sudden the television business became more valuable than the movie business. And as it did more and more high-end stuff, The Wire and The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and you know, on and on and on, those kinds of shows made it a lot sexier for name stars that wouldn't have looked twice at TV back in the day to start coming in. And the showrunners who create those shows, who, unlike in movies, the producer in TV is the person whose vision, often they write the thing, they certainly oversee the creation of it in every way, and the director is less important. It's the voice that's important. It's the story that's, being important, that's important, and it unfolds over weeks or months or years. And all of a sudden, that singular creative vision is what gets important, and that gets elevated. It's like you do care about, oh, this is a show for that person, and I know that that person knows how to deliver a show that I'm going to enjoy for you know, the next five months, and I'm gonna, I can't wait to watch it. So, you know, TV's more valuable, stars start showing up, so you can start watching, but then who's the vision? It's the vision of those showrunners. You touched on uh, censorship in the Chinese media landscape. 
we're seeing some examples of censorship a bit with our non-state actors here in the U.S., YouTube, Spotify, others, right? So the most recent example is InfoWars getting taken down off of social media platforms as a result of the views that it espouses. What's your take on that, and, and how do these platforms take a stand on issues when there is hate speech or inappropriate content versus drawing the line at censoring people from expressing their views? Well, I know that some of those folks like to talk about, you know, First Amendment rights. It's like, and if you know what the First Amendment is for, it protects you from government censorship. It doesn't protect you from going into a privately held company's, you know, platform that people choose to be part of and mucking about <laughs> in the stalls and you know, stomping all over the, the rules of the road that they created to create a relatively safe and adequate place for millions of people to come and gather and talk. Even the First Amendment, and I, I'm a pretty absolutist in the First Amendment, doesn't protect you from the consequences of your speech. You can say largely what you want, uh, with extremely few exceptions in this country. But that doesn't mean that, again, shouting fire in a crowded theater is okay. You can shout it, but you might get sued and arrested and put in jail. They won't prevent you from saying it, but you're vulnerable, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's the fighting words exception, but, you know, some of this stuff is, is pretty extreme. And it's hard to feel sympathetic to them when they are stomping all over verifiable facts. As a longtime journalist, I'm kind of big on let's get the real details out there. Let's not, you know, traffic in wild speculation. Let's not create. When Giuliani said, you know, facts aren't facts, it's like, well, maybe in your alternate universe, but <laughs> the rest of us are still hoping that there are some things that we can verify and say that is true. And again, you know, a private company has the right to, to, to figure out what the rules of the road are, and people get a right to expect that A, it will enforce those, and B, that it will have a certain level of experience. And if you knowingly stomp all over those, you should expect that there may be, again, some consequences for your choices in the way you exercise your speech. And clearly, those companies are still figuring it out, right? Spotify took action to remove R. Kelly and other artists. Uh, songs from the playlist feature, which is a primary mechanism for discovery and thus leads to a lot of views and monetization for these artists because of all of the allegations about R. Kelly and his inappropriate behavior, especially to minors over the years. And some artists complained about that coming to R. Kelly's defense. So the labels were saying, you know, he's being convicted in the court of public opinion and not in a court of law. And then due to the pressure from the labels, Spotify kind of later reverses that decision. What's your take and, and how do they find the right path forward to defend their values, but at the same time operate in the, the commercial landscape? I think that they're going to be navigating a very rough set of seas simply because the realities are that, you know, you look back to Def Jam in the 90s when uh, Al Gore's wife, Tipper, was pushing the Parents Musical Music Resource Coalition, the, you know, the, the rap music that they were deeming you know, uh, dangerous to children, and they wanted to have the explicit tag on there and all that. That that was like a that was a run at controlling that. And the Comics Code in the 1950s, the Hayes Code for film in the 1920s. We have had a variety of uh, efforts to control and limit objectionable sexual or violent speech in various media for a very long time. A lot of it has been self-imposed by industries to protect themselves from political pressure of one sort or another. This is the latest expression of that, and it is in music. You know, one of the artists that they took off of there was killed, actually, uh, in a shooting. I mean, he was leading a pretty dangerous life from what little I know about him, but died in Miami of a gunshot three, four months ago, about a month after he was taking, taken off. You know, Kelly, Kelly's been problematic going back 20 years, and he's not necessarily making films for Nazis, but he's definitely, there's a lot of, a lot of smoke around that that suggests there's some significant fire, including video, for goodness sake. So it's hard to feel too sympathetic to him, but I get some artists saying, look, you know, until he's gone to jail, he should be able to do whatever he wants. Well, again, Spotify has a choice. You know, we have an audience that likes 
these guys and these guys and these guys, do we want, I mean, we'll let him have his music still on the site, and they did. Sure, which But is we're fair. not going to promote the guy. Okay, so what does that mean? Say, we're not going to endorse the choices he makes, though we will let people find on their own. If they really want to find R. Kelly, they can find R. Kelly. That almost seems like, you know, trying to have your cake and eat it too as a, a company, but to some extent, they're, they're just saying, we're not going to endorse it by supporting and promoting it. And that's probably... That's actually probably not bad as an approach. I agree. It seemed to me a very fair approach to take. And it's a shame that they took so much heat for it because it seemed like an enlightened way to express their values, but at the same time not overly penalize artists. Right. Yeah. Uh, or audiences that want to get him. I mean, That's right. Kelly has remained a best-selling artist over the years despite all this stuff and possibly, you know, it adds to his mystique for whatever reason. You know, it's it's complicated when you have people saying stuff that's obnoxious. Um, and when you're in info wars and you're saying stuff that's obnoxious and possibly false and probably destructive to the Republic, you know, some of that, again, it steps over, you know, here's the rules of the road. If you step all over them, you know, we got to do something. Otherwise, why do we have rules? And if we don't have rules, then we don't have a place where advertisers want to go and consumers want to go, and then we don't have a business. So, you know, let's figure that one out. I mean, and, and there's nothing stopping InfoWars from building its own site and talking to people directly. I mean, they have more access to their audience directly where they make money and they can monetize it than has ever existed in history. They can reach more people, and, and if they've got a story to tell, they can do it. They just don't necessarily get to do it on Facebook. So you cover a wide range of the industry landscape. I'm curious to ask, what's something that you believe that everyone else thinks is totally crazy? Oh my goodness. I think Disney's gonna have a slower start with its streaming service, I mean, than people expect. I mean, it's Disney and it's BAMTech uh, that they've invested in and it's providing the underlying, the underlying technology. But I, I think that it's complicated to provide a broad enough service at a reasonable enough price that makes sense for Disney given all its other things. And it may be that they're going to get beat up for having you know, 3 million subs or 5 million subs or 8 million subs. I mean, what are going to be the standards for comparison for success for that site? It's going to have Pixar and it's going to have Star Wars. It's going to have Marvel. Great. It's going to have... Well, it's not going to have Shonda Rhimes movies and shows anymore because they're going to be on Netflix. It's not going to have Kenya Barris shows because they're going to be on there. It's not going to. They just named. Uh, they just hired a guy uh, Hirsch who did the best watched show on Disney XD ever. He's an animator. They just hired him to do animated stuff for. Them. It's sort of funny because I feel like Netflix is busy hiring away all of Disney's greatest creators, and as they do that. You know, Disney's, I'm not worried about Bob Iger's next meal or everything else because they're a diversified, gigantic company who does lots of things very, very well. But I think that the measures of success for this are going to be probably unreasonable and they're going to get beat up for it and maybe they should for being slow to the table. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes up. I, I think it's going to take them a while to get traction and even then they're going to be so far behind the leaders that they're going to be glad they have Hulu. Because <laughs> at least Hulu's going to have 30 or 40 million users. So that's, that's my thought, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a fair take. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the digital entertainment space, what would they be? We're going to start to see some SVOD services fall by the wayside within a year. We're going to lose a bunch of the lesser cable channels that are already being cut out of the skinny bundles and don't make sense in the future of what the cable business does as it tries to reduce costs. They're not gonna be able to get, the channel providers won't be able to shove a bunch of lesser channels down the throat of a cable provider. They'll just say, look, I, you know, our, our people aren't gonna pay for it and we're not gonna pay for it. There's no, you get less than 100,000 know, viewers and nobody's talking about your shows and you're dead. So that's a big deal for Hollywood, though, because there's a bunch of jobs that go away with that. I think the other thing is it looks like we're on hold a little bit, but I really think that the, what 5G does can be really transformative. And finally, I would say that 
local broadcast is something you want to watch because the new a, uh, ATSC 3.0 rules give them the opportunity to do more than a single channel to put digital stuff around there to have addressable advertising wrapped around it so you again you finally start to know your audience and you can send other stuff to them you have a back and forth conversation over the air for free to an audience that's tightly defined within your area so local advertising becomes more valuable and more worthwhile that's what the Sinclair uh, acquisition of Tribune was supposed to be all about getting enough scale to be in 200 markets that's off but you know, Tribune's going to end up somewhere, and we've got Gray and Raycom trying to get together, and we'll see a lot of activity in, in what used to be considered a backwater. I think it's going to have a, a chance to come back a little bit. So those are three of them. One of the questions that I ask everyone who comes on the show, since a lot of entrepreneurs listen to the podcast, is if you were going to start a business in the digital space today, what would you do? I would figure out the Levi Strauss mode. How do I do picks and shovels for an audience of businesses that need to get stuff done. Now maybe that's something like, how do I help brands create compelling content that works sponsored, native, or whatever you want to call it, branded entertainment, or we see a lot of digital agencies doing some of that stuff, but, and interestingly, I, I met somebody who's with a company called Media Monks, and they just did a bunch of brand activations, and so that's, companies like HBO doing live events at South by Southwest to connect to a set of influencers who will talk about Westworld, for instance, or Purge City doing a deal with somebody, the NBC Universal spin-off TV show of their the Jason Blum shows, the, the Purge films, and they took over a storefront at Comic-Con and did this fake party city Purge City activation. Well, those are interesting. So how do you help them do that, but then help them do VR and help them do augmented reality that helps the brand. It helps you tell a story in a variety of ways across multiple media that are beyond what the traditional outlets and the even the new technology guys are doing to connect directly with fans in lots of different ways. So if you can create those in a compelling way, you can do some really interesting stuff. Well, David, this has been so much fun. Where can people find out more about you and more about uh, all of the work that you do? I put some of my stuff on a little website called davidlbloom.com, B-L-O-O-M. I am on Forbes, on TubeFilter, and on TV Rev, and I do some analysis work with uh, the parent company of TV Rev on technology. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Bloom and on uh, LinkedIn at David L. Bloom, and I think I'm pretty well out there otherwise so I mean if you can't find me something's wrong <laughs> and they should check out the podcast as well Bloom and Tech that's I some of the stuff have, that you cover on yeah, the podcast I do have a podcast Bloom and Tech I talk to interesting people and I will talk to you soon that I run across who are doing interesting things in the technology space and entertainment about some of the issues we care about but what they're doing and where things are going and I put that out maybe once a week and uh, as things come across my transom that are that are worth getting into. But I'm trying to be multimedia myself after years, you know, starting out with Gutenberg and working my way forward. So I'm in lots of places now. Very cool. Well, David, thanks again. It's fascinating to get your perspective on such a wide ranging host of topics. Specifically, I love that you bring so much of the historical context to the work that you do and, and the stories that you write, but also the way that you talk about this uh, in your show. So thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.